Right, good morning. Uh, would you please turn your Bibles, brothers and sisters, to uh, the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 2, as we continue our sermon series through this uh, beautiful and encouraging uh, book that God has given us. Zechariah and chapter 2. The year 1833 was a very significant year in history, but you might not realize why it is significant, or why it was significant in some ways for us. Uh, in 1833, a small tribe called the Bani Yas tribe moved into and settled in a small creek in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Bani Yas tribe settled there in 1833, and they began purling, fishing for pearls, they began fishing, and eventually they moved into the sea trade. And over the next hundred years, this uh, little creek began to grow into a bustling town and a bustling port. It, it grew into a fishing port called Dubai. By the 1960s, Dubai was growing into a small little busy town in the Middle East, there were two paved roads in the whole of Dubai. There was only one paved airstrip, and this was at the Royal Air Force Base in Sharjah, put there by the British. Some of you might remember the 1990s, when I was a young boy and, and I visited Dubai, I think 1994 or 95 on vacation with my family, and, and my memory of Dubai in the 90s was of a nice city with a lot of fast cars, uh, a lot of good parks, and some good shopping centers, but it had the feel of a, of a nice homely city. I, I liked it. Well, fast forward to the 2020s, and Dubai has the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest hotel, the JW Marriott Marquis, the world's largest shopping mall, the Dubai Mall, the world's largest indoor theme park, until last year, the world's busiest airport, and the world's longest fully automated metro network. An unbelievable transformation. And you know, if you Google transformation of Dubai and look at some of the old pictures and the new, or, or watch one of those time-lapse YouTube videos, you would be amazed because this is now far beyond what anyone could have imagined. Well, today's passage in Zechariah 2 shows us a vision of another city. A city rebuilt. A city experiencing an unimaginable transformation that surpasses all expectations. The city that God has prepared for his people. And brothers and sisters, as we look at this glorious city that Zechariah shows us, this vision should give us great joy because this is our city. And, and because this is the Lord's promise to dwell with us, his people. It should also give us a sense of urgency to flee from this world and to put our hope in God's heavenly 
city. And we're going to look at three coming realities in this passage. Three coming realities and how God invites us to respond to those realities. First, we hope in the coming restoration. The coming restoration, that's the first reality, and we must hope in the coming restoration. Look at verses 1 to 5. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run! Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. So what is Zechariah seeing in this vision. You know, he opens, this is the third vision, by the way, we've looked at the first two last week. Zechariah lifts his eyes and he sees this man, verse 1, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Zechariah sees this man walking along this measuring line. He says, hey, where, where, where are you going? And the man says, He's, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a mission to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Now, you know, again, when you read the Bible and when you read symbolic visions like this, you might get a little excited with inter interpretation. You might say, oh, who's this man? You know, what is his identity? Maybe he's an angel. You know, maybe he, he's some kind of a, a messenger from God. What, what is this guy? What is his name? Well, the Bible doesn't give us all those details. Once again, what is the focus on? What is the text focusing on? We don't know his name. We don't even know who he is. What we do know is what he is doing. The emphasis is on what he's doing. And you know, maybe there are some civil engineers this morning. I know there's at least one, our brother Dion, who, who read the uh, passage for us earlier. And, and civil engineers are understanding this, yeah? What is, what is this guy doing? He's going out to survey. He's going out to survey the land, to survey Jerusalem, to take measurements. He is convinced of God's promises that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and restored. So he said, it makes sense. Let's go take measurements and let's plan the rebuilding. Right? Jerusalem had been broken and shattered. It's, it's all ruins because of the people's sin. But now it's going to be restored. And if it's going to be restored, then it must be measured so that the plans can be made for rebuilding it. But then something Unexpected happens in verses 3 to 5. All of a sudden, an angel comes forward, verse 3, and then another angel comes forward to meet him, and the first angel tells the second angel, Run! You need to stop this guy's mission. You need to stop this guy from doing what he's doing. Tell him not to waste his time. Run! Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. The exercise of doing a survey and measuring 
the length and width of Jerusalem is going to be useless. It's going to be futile. It might even be foolish. Because, dear young man who wants to take the measurements, you have limited what God is about to do by an earthly measure. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. And you say to me, oh, that doesn't sound like something too great. It was a city, now it's going to be like a village? What, what, what is that? Well, you see, walls, what do the walls do in a city? They show you the city limits. They show you the boundary line of the city. But with villages, there are no walls to show you the boundary line. Ever been in, in you know, rural areas and, and the farmlands and, and out in the village and, and it feels like the land just goes on and on forever? No boundaries? That's what Jerusalem is going to be. What else do walls do? You know, a couple of years ago I was in uh, Turkey with my family and we went to Istanbul and we saw the walls of what was formerly Constantinople. Those walls protected Constantinople from enemy invasion for nearly a thousand years before the walls were breached. Walls were there, one to mark the boundary, secondly for military protection. Jerusalem is not going to have a boundary, so it can't be measured, and it's not going to be needing military protection because it's going to be perfectly safe. And why is it going to be perfectly safe? Because look at verse 5. The Lord God is going to be her boundary. The Lord God is going to be her protection. He is going to fill Jerusalem with his glory and he will be a wall of fire around his place. You see this man with the measuring line? He was of the mistaken Impression He had the wrong expectation that when God rebuilds Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem would be no different from the old. He was limiting God's plans. Isn't that something that we do? We limit the Lord to our small, minute and worldly expectations. When we think about the church, when we think about ourselves as God's people, our vision, our mission, our aspirations, our expectations of what the Lord can do, sometimes we bring a human measuring line and, and we think we have it figured out. We think we can measure this. We think with our limited worldly perspectives. We even become pessimistic and lose hope about the advance of the gospel and the mission of the church. Well, God loves to shatter our expectations, to blow our minds by doing greater things than we can ask or even think. The things that God does surpasses all our imagination for the glory of his name among us. And that's what we see here, friends. Now, you may disagree with me on this. It's a, it's a debatable matter among evangelical Christians who love the Lord. If you disagree with me, that's okay. But this is one of the reasons that I'm not convinced, I'm not persuaded that these promises are fulfilled 
in a literal earthly Jerusalem. Some people take this to mean that, you know, the earthly land of Israel will be restored and, and re Jerusalem rebuilt. But I'm, I'm not convinced of that. Because when I, when I read this text, when I see what's being said here, this seems to be something far, far greater. The restored and rebuilt Jerusalem cannot be measured. It cannot be limited. It's far more glorious than what the prophet Zechariah dreams of. It's far greater and wider than what this young man with a measuring line could ever think of measuring. Jerusalem is uncontainable by the multitude of people and livestock in it. Verse 4. It is overflowing in its population, people, and it is overflowing in its prosperity, livestock. It's protected by the Lord himself as her wall of fire. It's indwelled by God Almighty himself in all his glory. There is an innumerable multitude of people here. The people can't even be numbered. And brothers and sisters, this is being fulfilled in our day as the Lord our God is saving and gathering a great multitude, both Jews and Gentiles, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Friends, this is speaking about the new Jerusalem that is being established in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews points us to it. The author of Hebrews tells us that there is a city even Abraham, he says, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The author of Hebrews instructs us, Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking the city that is to come. There's a glorious coming restoration of an awesome city that will be ours. You know, maybe... You think about the times that you're getting ready to go on vacation. I know for many, it's been a long time since you had vacation back in your home country. But, but I think about those days, you know, when the summer heat is beginning and the school year is coming to an end and, you know, your, your mind is already floating away from work and, and the everyday grind of life over here. You know, you're getting ready to go vacation. You start, your mind already floats away. You begin thinking about home. You begin thinking about the foods you're going to eat, the people you're going to meet, the things you're going to see. And that hope of, of looking forward to vacation, to refreshment, it gives you the energy and the strength to just face just another day, just another day, just one more week, just a few more days. I will catch the flight. I got my tickets. Friends, are you tired? Are you weary in this world? Are you weary at work, at your job? Are you heavy-hearted after one year of COVID-19? Is your heart, is your soul heavy? I want to encourage you this morning, live in light of this hope. This world is not our home. Abu Dhabi is not our home. Your home country is not our home. That's not all there is. We look forward to a glorious city. That's filled with God's glory. I, I want to point you to the innumerable multitude of people in this city. Maybe like me, dear Christian, you're grieving the loss of a loved one. 
You've lost someone this year who died in Christ, who died in the Lord. You can have this hope. They're part of this innumerable multitude. Our loved ones who have died in the Lord will be part of this city. Children, I want to speak to you. This is a glorious city. This is better than Abu Dhabi. This is better than Dubai. This is better than back home that your parents take you and better than any city that you've visited in your life. It's a safe city. God protects it. It's a beautiful city filled with God's presence. Children, don't you want to be a part of that city? We hope for a new city where there's no more pain, no more death, no more crying. And here's something exciting. We come to this city. We experience this city. We begin to taste life in this city even now. The author of Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews 12, he's speaking about our gathering as the church. He's speaking about Friday mornings and worship together. And he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are already experiencing in the church, in our worship, in our community, the new and heavenly Jerusalem, God's city. God's presence is his glory within, strengthening us for every good work. And God is the fire outside, protecting us from every attack of the enemy. Oh, what a longing we should have and hope we should have in light of this. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. I, I want to speak to you a little bit, dear friend, about that, that feeling of longing that is there. You know what it is? You know, I've, I've had that. I remember many, many years ago when I was like you, I was, I was not a Christian. I thought I had everything in this world. I had a great uh, rock music career going on. I had a great engineering degree and a job waiting for me. But there was always this sense that there's something more to life. There's something missing. There's got to be something better than this world. I know you feel that, dear non-Christian friend. And I want to tell you, it's found here. It's found in God's city, in the city that God is building for his people. You see, just like the people of this time, the prophet Zechariah and, and the people of Israel at this time, they were longing. They, they were longing for something more. They were longing for the restoration of their land. But the truth is we all have that longing. We too long for what we've lost. You see, the Bible begins with Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first human beings created by God, placed in a beautiful garden paradise, living with God in his presence. But we sinned, they sinned. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and break his commands and sin against him. And so they were exiled. They were expelled from God's presence, sent out of this garden paradise. And the way back to the presence of God, if, if, if some of you remember from Genesis, was blocked 
with a flaming sword. There was fire guarding the way back in. So for us as sinners, there's no way back in. There's no way back to the presence of God and to life. There's fire guarding the entrance. You know, Pastor Wiley and uh, I were reading the, the text together yesterday, and he pointed out, he said, it's the same thing here, right? There was fire blocking the way to the Garden of Eden. There's a wall of fire around this city, Jerusalem. But notice the difference. In Genesis, we're outside with no way in, blocked by the fire. We, in, in Zechariah 2, we're inside the wall of fire. We're on the inside and not the out. How do you get from outside to inside? What is the price of admission into this safe and wonderful city when all things are restored? We're sinners. We belong outside. Well, the price is death. The price is blood for sinners to be brought in. But we've seen that this city is full of people. It's overflowing. There's a great multitude. How are sinners brought in? How can you be brought in? Well, we're brought in by the builder of this city who suffered outside the earthly city of Jerusalem to bring us in. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Christ is the architect and builder of the heavenly Jerusalem. And Jesus suffered and died outside the gates of the earthly Jerusalem as a substitute for us taking our sins, taking the judgment that we deserve so that sinners like you and I might come into the heavenly Jerusalem. He died outside the earthly Jerusalem. We come into the heavenly Jerusalem through faith in him. And he calls to us to come. So dear children, I want to call you to come. Non-Christian friend, I want you to come. Flee from your sin. Flee from your earthly city and earthly attachments. And trust in Jesus. You see, there is a call to flee in this passage. A, a call to escape from the burning city of this world and to run to the new and heavenly Jerusalem in Christ. That's what we see next. Because the text shows us a second city and a second coming reality, and that is the reality of judgment. So first, we must hope in the coming restoration. But second, we must flee we must escape from the coming judgment. Look at verses 6 to 9. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Look at the emphasis there. Verse 6, flee from the land of the north. Verse 7, escape to Zion. There's an urgency here. What is the land of the north? The land of the north was Babylon. It was to the east of Israel. 
the land of Israel, but you had to take the route north to get there. And of course, we remember it was God who scattered them to this land because of their sin against him. Just like Adam and Eve and all of us were sent out, exiled from God's presence, Israel was exiled from God's promised land. They were scattered. God scattered them to the north. And we, apart from Christ in our sin, we stand separated from God in this world. But now there's a call to flee, to escape this world. Those who are dwelling with the daughter of Babylon must escape. What does that mean, daughter, daughter of Babylon? Well, Babylon, first of all, was, was no longer you know, active. The Babylonian Empire was crushed, brought down by the Persians. And when you say daughter of Babylon, it means someone whose allegiance is to Babylon, someone whose identity is there. And Babylon stands not just for the city of Babylon, but for the whole worldly system, the sinful world system that is in opposition to God. You know, there were Israelites in Zechariah's time. They were scattered, exiled, and now they were in Babylon. But they grew comfortable in exile. They grew comfortable in the land of their captivity. Now God is calling them to return, and these people were hesitant to return to the land of Israel. Too busy building their own lives too busy wanting to go back and build God's temple. Sometimes you get comfortable in a foreign land, right? You all know this as expats. You know, I've met so many expats. The time is coming to leave and go home or some circumstances change and you have to leave and go home. It's very, very, very difficult to leave the UAE. Well, these people were finding it difficult to leave Babylon. They did not want to come back and build God's temple. Now, I've told this uh, story before. Maybe you might remember it. But August 1973, Birgitta Lundblad, Elizabeth Olgren, Kristen Enmark, and Sven Safstrom, these four were taken hostage in the credit banking in Sweden by a career criminal named Jan-Erik Olsen. They were held hostage inside the bank premises for six days until finally they were rescued by armed forces. At the end of the six days, there was quite a surprise. These four victims had formed some kind of positive relationship with the one who was the captor. They began to sympathize and side with the captor. They, they refused, in fact, to testify against the criminal in court. And, and this phenomenon became known as the Stockholm Syndrome, the Stockholm Syndrome, where there's a transfer of loyalties of someone who's been held captive. They begin to identify and sympathize with the one who's holding them captive rather than the one who rescues them. Friends, are you in danger of a spiritual Stockholm Syndrome? You know, sometimes we forget what side we're on. We lose sight of the one who has rescued us, and instead we identify with our enemies. Dear Christian, have you trusted in Christ and pledged your life to him, but now you're flirting with the daughter of Babylon? Has this season of the pandemic 
over the last year caused you to slip into worldliness and a spiritual Stockholm syndrome? Have you grown worldly? Some questions that might help to diagnose if, if that's the problem. Have patterns crept into your life to prioritize other things, the things of this world, above the things of God? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a sense of safety and security or some kind of recognition that you're pursuing. Ask yourself, what is it that you treasure and value the most? Maybe you have compromised and given in to some culturally acceptable way of doing things, whatever your culture is, that compromises God's word. Maybe you look for ways to fit in with the world, but you've fallen away from obedience to the word. Do you desire outward prosperity more than you desire inward godliness? What is it that fills your prayers? Do you cry out for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done? Do you call to him for the sake of others? Or are you just asking for things for yourself? Better job, better finances, better this, better that, better life. Is your relationship with the Lord based on wanting to further your ambition? Or are you living to glorify him? Friends, by asking those questions, you can begin to test whether you have begun to love Babylon. And, you know, maybe you've begun working for the glory of man and your own glory rather than the glory of God and the city of God. Maybe you've begun to sympathize with Satan, our enemy, rather than Jesus, our rescuer. I want to call to you this morning, dear Christian friends, remember your citizenship. We are all expats in this world. We're on a temporary assignment. Don't make this world your home. Flee, flee, flee. Escape to Zion. Why the urgency to flee and escape to Zion? Why this urgency? Because God Almighty is going to judge Babylon. Look at verses 8 and 9. Thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The enemies of God, Babylon, and the other nations of the world, had oppressed and persecuted and plundered the people of God. And now the Lord, who is jealous for his people, who loves his people is going to bring justice. It's always the same. The system and the mindset of this world are in opposition to God and His people. And the Lord is jealous for His people. You persecute God's people, you're persecuting Him. Jesus told Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me when Saul went to persecute the church? And the Lord will bring just judgment on those who stand in opposition to him and his people. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a part of his people whom he is passionate about. But if you are not, and if you have stood against God and his gospel and his church, 
And what the text tells us is that you have poked him in the eye. Ever had somebody poke you in the eye? That can provoke a strong reaction. God says, he who touches you, that is, touches his people, has touched the apple of my eye. Jesus is coming soon. The one who came as Savior will come as judge, and he will bring judgment and justice against all who stand in opposition to him and his people. So this is urgent. If you're still living in Babylon, it's time to run. I I want to speak to our children and especially our teens. I want to caution you. Babylon is attractive. It's glitzy. It's got many things that will try to woo you. But God is going to judge Babylon. It's going to go down in flames and we've got to run. You know, maybe you've read the beautiful Christian story, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, a classic. And you know, the the story begins with a man named Christian. He is living in what they call the city of destruction. And he realizes judgment is coming on the city. It's going to go down in flames. And he feels burdened and he wants to escape. And then a man named Evangelist comes and talks to Christian. And he tells him, you've got to flee from this city and go to the celestial city. The city of safety and salvation. And, and, you know, Christian is thinking about leaving and, and his family is begging him, his wife, his family begging him, stay behind, don't go. But he just closes his ears, he puts his, his hands in his ears and he screams, life, life, eternal life. And he runs, he flees. We've got to flee. Dear non-Christian friend, maybe you don't realize it, but I want you to know you're a part of Babylon. You're a part of this world system that I'm speaking of. You will go down in flames with Babylon if you stay in it. I want you to know the world, we all stand under the judgment of God for opposition to him. We've poked him in the eye. And the Lord says he's going to shake his hand in judgment. And he will shake his hand in judgment over you if you do not repent. But there's still time. Now, today is the time to escape to Zion, to flee to the heavenly city. The only way of being saved from God's judgment is in Zion through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus will one day come as a righteous judge and there will be eternal punishment for all who have rejected him. But he has already come as a savior, as a suffering savior, To save citizens of Babylon and make them citizens of Zion. We are all citizens of Babylon. We all deserve God's judgment. We all have this in common. We're guilty. But Jesus took the judgment of God upon himself to rescue us and bring us to him. So you can have him one of two ways. Either as savior or as judge. And so I plead with you. Flee Flee, flee, flee from Babylon, run to Christ who welcomes with open arms anyone who will turn from sin and trust in him. Don't let anything stop you from fleeing to Christ. Don't even let family stop you from fleeing to Christ. And your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you hear the urgency in this message? 
We have an urgent message to tell. We've got to tell people judgment is coming. We must call people to flee and come to Jesus while there's still time. But we must remember that it's more than just escaping from judgment. We're not just escaping from the city that is going down in flames. We are entering into a glorious new city that will endure forever. So Zechariah brings us back to that coming city again. This time from a different perspective. You might remember I said, prophets sometimes communicate in Dolby surround sound. So in verses 1 to 5, he put the left speaker on. Now in verses 10 and following, he puts the right speaker on and you're hearing in surround sound the beauty of Jerusalem. And here we see our third coming reality and how we must respond. First, we hope in the coming restoration. Second, we must flee from the coming judgment. And third, we rejoice in the coming reunion. We rejoice in the coming reunion. Look at verse 10 to 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. First we saw the restored place. Now we see the reunited people, reunited with the Lord God. And the Lord God calls us to sing and to rejoice because the king has returned. He's come back to us, his people. And notice again, this is far greater than the earthly Jerusalem or just the holy land or just the restoration of an earthly Israel. Look at verse 11. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and they shall be my people. Friends, that's the covenant formula. Throughout the Old Testament, God says, they shall be my people and I shall be their God. And in the Old Testament, he typically speaks of the nation of Israel. But here he's saying, Many nations shall be my people. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham's family, all nations will be blessed and we are blessed in Christ because God is gathering all nations to be his family, to be in his place. This is fulfilled right now in us. We are the people whom God has gathered and joined to himself from the nations. That's why we sing. They were, they were called to sing and it wasn't even visible yet. It wasn't a reality. We are living in the reality. That's why we come together and say, we will feast in the house of Zion. We rejoice in this union. This is why we go on mission and evangelism. All of us are gospel ambassadors. We go out to the nations. God has promised he's bringing the nations in. So we are to invite them, call them, come be joined to the Lord. God is gathering his people and many nations will join themselves to him. But what is it that makes it all so glorious and all so amazing and all so beautiful? Why is it so joyful that it causes us to sing? Is it just because of the people from every nation? No, it's because of who the people are joined to. We rejoice in the coming reunion of God with his people. Look at verse 10. God says, Behold, I come, 
and I will dwell in your midst. Verse 11, he says again, and I will dwell in your midst. In verse 5, he already said, I will be glory in her midst. Why is the heavenly Jerusalem so beautiful, so glorious? Why does it fill our hearts with joy and singing? Because the God of glory and joy dwells in it. God's glory, if you're reading the story, if you've read the Old Testament, you'll see because of Israel's sin, God's glory departed from the temple. And in Zechariah, the people of Israel are hoping for his glory to return. They're waiting for it to come back. Well, the Bible doesn't record the glory coming back to the earthly temple. But when we come to the New Testament, we see the glory of God come to his people. Because the Lord Jesus Christ comes and John tells us, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is the glory in our midst. In Jesus, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why is Jerusalem so wonderful? Because God is there in Christ. He dwelt among us. He dwells among us now by the Spirit. And He will come to dwell again with us forever and ever. So that even now, in the midst of trials and tears, even in the midst of pain, even when we are in COVID-19 and the church is meeting at 30% and life is turned upside down, we can sing and rejoice. Verse 13 ends the passage. He says, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And that's a call like, Hush! God is about to do something. And you want to see what he does? Let me close with Revelation 21. Where John says he saw this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And if you go to verse 15 of that same text, it shows us another man with a measuring rod. And the angel who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height were equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And you're thinking, oh, I thought they said that Jerusalem can't be measured. How is this guy now measuring it? Well, it's telling us something different here. You see the numbers 12,000 and 144? What those numbers represent is Absolute completeness. God will finish off his work. And so, dear friends, I close with a call and an invitation. Come. Come to the heavenly city. The gates are open. 
And the price for entrance has been paid in blood by the Lord Jesus Christ. 